Charles Colson was in India last fall, and every time he spoke to crowds, they of course wanted to hear about the testimony of this Watergate criminal turned uh, prison evangelist. And so he told his testimony to many of them, and he recorded in an article in last the last uh, Christianity Today what happened. Let me read a couple of paragraphs This is very, very important in putting in perspective what we're up to this morning. When I was in India last fall, I had many opportunities to tell what Christ has done in my life. The thousands of faces in those predominantly Hindu crowds would nod and smile as I shared my experience. Hindus believe that all roads lead to God. If I have Jesus as my guru, that's fine. They have their gurus too. But when I spoke of the reason for my faith, the resurrection of Christ, the nods stopped and people's expressions changed and they listened intently. The fact of the resurrection demands a choice, he writes, one that reduces all other religions to mere philosophies. Christianity just smacks you in the face because it says that The most marvelous things in life are not the feelings of the heart, not subjective religious experience, but the facts of history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Put yourself back in Athens for a moment. It's 25 years after the death of Jesus. You're a sort of religious pluralist, okay? You like to talk about religions. The favorite topic of discussion when you go out on the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, and people come from all over the world to Athens and you inquire about their religion and it's great because they tell you about their religion and you tell them about your religion and sometimes you can even learn a little something that you can incorporate into your religion and helps you get along better in the world. And so along comes this fellow named Paul from uh, Palestine. And he says, when he gets his chance to speak, Well, I worship Jesus Christ. Uh, He was a, a, a wonder worker and a teacher back in Palestine 25 years ago. He taught a way of love and he was wise and he was wonderful. And those who knew him were swept away in his train. And even when he died, he didn't fall to the lowest level of the human desires for a vindictiveness or vengeance, but he held true to his stoical faith in God. And those of us who preserve his teaching and try to keep it have experienced a wonderful uh, warmth in our hearts. And we commend Jesus Christ to you too. Period. Now, what would their, have, their response have been? Tolerance. Fine. Paul, you've got your guru, we've got our guru, and if, if that meets your need, good, great. And, and if, if our unknown God or our God meets our needs, fine. That's just okay. Period. End of the show. On to the next town. But suppose the Apostle Paul said, which the Bible says that he said, The God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them commands that all men everywhere repent. And He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man 
whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance by raising Him from the dead. Period. Then what would His hearers' response have been? That kind of talk is not acceptable in a religious dialogue. The discussion of the relative merits of subjective religious experience is one thing. The declaration of one man's resurrection from the dead by whom the whole world will be judged is another thing. That's arrogant. That's religious chauvinism. We don't allow people like you to carry on religious discussion on Areopagus. And so the Hindus stop nodding. And the Athenians start mocking. And Jesus Christ was crucified. And anybody who tries to follow him in this uniquely offensive historical religion will be persecuted sooner or later. I want to direct your attention this morning to a text in which there are four marvelous facts on which we can fix our gaze for the encouragement of our faith and for the increase of the fervency of our worship this morning. The text is Matthew 21, verse 42. The way I'm going to handle it this morning is to read the text with you. Then we're going to immediately go to Acts chapter 4 to read Peter's interpretation of the text. Then we're going to come back to the text and fix our gaze on four marvelous facts. Okay? Now, the context of the verse, before we read it, is the parable of the uh, wicked tenants. You know the story? There was an owner who had a vineyard. He rented it out to tenants. They were wicked. He wanted fruit from it. He deserved fruit from it. He sent down servants to get fruit from it, and they got beat up. And some of them got killed. And then he decided to risk his son. And he sends his son. And they say, aha, the heir. They cast him outside. They kill him. Now, the interpretation of the parable is plain. God is the owner. The vineyard is Israel. The fruit that he deserves is obedience and worship. The first servants that came were the prophets. And the son was Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, here comes our text. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, before I say anything about the text, let's go and see what Peter says about the text. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Let me give you the context here as well as there. Peter and John have gotten themselves into trouble by healing a man in the temple. And uh, a big furor happens because they say it was by the name of Jesus whom you crucified that we healed this man. And so they put him in jail for one night. They bring him out in the morning, gather them in the midst of uh, Caiaphas. He was the one whom, before whom Jesus was first tried and the other high priests. And they say to him, Peter... By whose power do you do such things? And so here's his answer. Verse 8 at the end is where we begin. Rulers of the people and elders, 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, his interpretation of Jesus' word is very clear. Let's take it point by point. First, the stone is Jesus Christ. Verse 10. Jesus of Nazareth. Second, the builders, verse 8, are the rulers, the people, and the elders. Third, the rejection of the stone is the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 10. And fourth, the elevation of the stone to be the head of the corner is the resurrection of Jesus by God the Father. And fifth, the meaning of the headship of this stone is verse 12. There is no other name among men, given among men, by which you must be saved. Jesus has been elevated to a position of unique, absolute, worldwide authority. That's the meaning of being elevated to the head of the corner. Now, that's... Peter's interpretation. It's clear. It's helpful. Let's go back to Matthew 21, 42. And what I want to do now on the basis of Peter's interpretation, which I believe is true, draw out and fix your gaze with mine upon four marvelous facts. And I get the word marvelous, of course, from the text. This is the Lord's doing And it is marvelous in our eyes. First, we should marvel that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. He did this before. He'll do it again. Sometimes he predicted his resurrection with words that are lucid and crystal clear and unmistakable. For example, in Mark 14, 28, he says... After I'm raised, I will go before you into Galilee. That's pretty plain. After I'm raised, I will go before you into Galilee. But usually, Jesus did not talk that way. Usually, he used language that was veiled and indirect. He said things like, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. Or he said things like, No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. In other words, he talked often for people who just had ears to hear. And other people just go away scratching their heads. What's this Jonah business? What's this temple? How can he build a temple? It took us 46 years. That's the way he talked from the beginning to the end of his life. Now, the reason I point this out as something marvelous is I want to sow a seed in your mind that I don't have time to water and and fertilize and and, uh, 
cultivate into a big, strong tree of faith, which I hope it becomes. But I want to at least sow the seed. And the seed is namely this. You can't love or admire Jesus as a wise and loving teacher if you reject him as a living and reigning master. And the reason you can't is because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's a lousy teacher. He's confused, deluded. Because Jesus said numerous times and indicated by his actions numerous times, he's going for broke. He's going to rise from the dead. And if you say, well, I like Jesus and the way he talked and the way he acted, but none of this present reign in heaven and authority over me and judge at the end of the world, no way. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too, as it were. Now, somebody will say, perhaps, no, wait a minute, you're overlooking something, because you're assuming, when you say that, that every time Jesus predicted his resurrection, you're assuming he really said that. And the skeptic that you're talking about here, who doesn't accept the supernatural and doesn't want to buy into Jesus as the risen Lord, he's going to, he's going to say, isn't he, that the church wrote these Gospels, and therefore they put in the mouth of Jesus all these predictions so that it would look like Jesus thought he would be raised, but really he was just an ordinary man. And that's exactly what thousands of people would say if they've been university trained in theology. Now, the answer to that particular response is that no matter how much you try to strip away from the Gospels. See, if you say, oh, that's church tradition, we strip that away. And that's church tradition, we strip that away. And that was added by Matthew, and Jesus didn't really say that, so we strip that away. No matter how much you strip away, the Jesus that you end up with is not a mere man. The critics who presume to uh, take the onion of the gospel and peel it away, looking for the core of a real, normal, natural, ordinary, unpretentious, unassuming, undivine Jesus, find nothing at the center. He vanishes because he didn't exist. There was a group of Scholars uh, Hoskins and Davies wrote a book a generation ago called The Riddle of the New Testament. And the riddle was, we can't find the liberal Jesus that was created by Albert Schweitzer in the movement of the last century. He's not there. He evaporates. You look and you, you strip and you tear and you get as much out of here as you can that's supernatural. And even if you've got six sayings left with Rudolf Bultmann, they are intolerably authoritative, intolerably presumptuous. In other words, Jesus' self-consciousness as one who would rise from the dead and who was something more than a man so permeates what he said and what he did that no matter what part you pick and choose, it just radiates with something other than a mere ordinary person. And so I want you, first of all, this morning to marvel that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. And secondly, let us marvel at the blindness of the builders. This is astonishing. This is a marvel. The builders, 
The builders know stones, don't they? I mean, these are the stone knowers. Rejected the stone, the main stone, the most beautiful stone, the perfect stone, the exquisite and precious stone. They just cast it out on the trash heap. And Jesus is just blown away. You remember Mark 6, 6, he comes into Nazareth to his own people who know him best. And it says, he marveled at their unbelief. Remember his meeting with Nicodemus when he was done carrying him through? And he said, are you a teacher in Israel, a builder, and you don't understand these things? He just marveled at the unbelief of the builders. Now, while we're marveling at the unbelief of the builders, let's learn a lesson. They're still here. The builders are the the religious elite, pastors, seminary teachers, university professors, denominational officials, and maybe deacon board members. The builders. Those who know religious things, they're here. And many of them are still blind. You know the story from two years ago about the professor at the University of Leeds in England? He was taken from his university post in the Faculty of Theology and installed as Bishop of Durham. His name was David Jenkins. You remember the hubbub two years ago, perhaps? You read in the paper? David Jenkins, when he was installed, he announced, to use his own words, the resurrection of Jesus was a conjuring trick with bones. The Bishop of Durham, Church of England. Here's a builder for you. 60-year-old builder. Rejecting the stone. Rejecting the stone. Now, we should be vigilant in the midst of our marveling here. Oh, how we should be vigilant in our churches and in our colleges and in our Sunday school classes and in our deacon council. Vigilant to examine the builders for two reasons. You know what happened? You know what happened when David Jenkins said that? Within weeks, it was around the world to the Muslims in Sri Lanka. And in Sri Lanka, when the Muslims heard that Anglican bishops were discounting the resurrection and the deity of Jesus, you know what they did? They mounted an immediate house-to-house visitation campaign among simple Christians. And what they said was, look, your leaders back in your uh, homeland or back in the place where your religion came from are now announcing, just like we've always taught, that the Lord Jesus is a prophet. Just a prophet, just like Muhammad, and we can come together and worship in the mosque and worship the one true God and honor Jesus and honor Muhammad. And one of the Anglican rectors in the town there said, we are being killed by our bishop's own words. So that's the first reason. There are builders, blind builders in the seminaries, in the churches, in the universities, and the churches are being killed by unbelief. In the name of academic theology. And the second reason is this. Ian Murray in the January Banner of Truth said, Why the big hubbub about the Jenkins affair? 
He taught that for decades to aspiring pastoral candidates at the University of Leeds in the theology department, and nobody said a word. Surely he's not going to do as much damage now when all of his cards are on the table and he's in public as he did for three decades in the university. Brothers and sisters, the, the implication is vigilance. Examine the builders. Examine the pastoral staff. Examine the seminary faculty. Examine the Sunday school teachers. Examine the board of deacons. Know that they embrace the stone that was rejected. That they hold true to the doctrine of Scripture. So the second thing we should marvel at is the blindness of the builders. The third thing that we should marvel at is that the stone, which is now at the head of the corner, is itself the very stone which the builders rejected. Now, let me say this again so you get the thrust of what I'm saying. The stone which is now at the head of the corner is not just any stone. It is the same stone, the very stone that was once Rejected. Now, let me take the imagery away and just state it plain factually. The one who reigns at the Father's right hand, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and who will one day judge the world in righteousness, is a man. A man. To be sure, more than a man, God the Son came into the world and clothed himself with a human nature in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might die for sinners like you and me. And then he rose and ascended to the right hand of God as that very man. The one who is at the right hand of the Father is a rejected stone, a beaten up man. Luke 24, verses 36 following, describe a situation in which Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to the uh, disciples, to the, to the apostles. And they're blown away by this. They just fall back in fear and they say, it's a ghost. They think they're seeing a ghost, a spirit. Well, that is such a threat to the truth of the gospel that Jesus bends over backwards now to show them He's not a ghost. So listen to what he says and what he does. Why are you troubled, he says? Why do questions rise in your hearts? See my hands? My feet? Holds up his feet. It is I, myself, handle me. See, for a spirit does not have flesh, bones, bones like you see me have. That doesn't work. It doesn't help. They're just blown away for unbelief. They just... These are not gullible guys. Don't think they were swept away by the resurrection. They were slow to believe. They just stand there. It doesn't happen. That sort of thing doesn't happen. It's a ghost. He was dead. So what does Jesus do? He says, Do you have anything to eat? (laughs) They give him a piece of broiled fish. He goes, Watch this. 
The Lord of the universe eats fish. He reigns at God's right hand as a rejected stone, as a man who has flesh and bones and eats fish. And brothers and sisters, that has marvelous implications for us right now and in the future. Right now. What text would you use if I said, give me a text that describes the relevance of that truth? I'll bet a lot of you would say Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses and when nails go through our hands and swords pierce our side. We don't have a high priest who can't resonate when we're rejected and thrown on the trash heap of the universe. We get a high priest who can feel what we feel because he's a man. And therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I tell you, it is a great and comforting truth this very day when you're in trouble and pain to know that the one who intercedes for you with God Almighty and makes your case before the Father is a man, a rejected stone. And not only that, it is wonderfully full of comfort for the future. Get every ethereal... Every ghost-like notion of the coming kingdom out of your head. Because when the kingdom comes, we're going to eat fish. You're going to see Jesus Christ just as though He were right here preaching with a voice, with skin, with bones. You're going to see Him. You're going to touch Him. And you're going to see all the people that these flowers celebrate if they knew the Lord Jesus. You're going to walk up to them and they're going to have the same face, only perfect. There's going to be wonderful union. But no more wheelchairs, no more crutches, no more cancer, no more leukemia, no more arthritis, no more allergies. We're going to be conformed to the image of the Son of God and the Son of Man. Paul says, if the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your what? Mortal bodies. Mortal bodies, not some fancy, ethereal, untouchable, unfeelable, uneating thing. The mortal body that dies rises and is perfected after the image of the glorified son. Like Philippians 3.20 says, we will receive a body like his glorious body. Well, we marvel that he predicted his resurrection. We marvel at the blindness of the builders, and we marvel that the stone which is in the corner at the head is the very stone that was rejected. 
And one last thing, very briefly. It is a marvelous thing to contemplate what the stone at the head means. What does it mean that he was elevated to the head of the corner? Well, I think Paul knew best what the answer to that was, the Apostle Paul, and so he said this. God has raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and dominion and power. Above every name that is named, whether in this age or in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and made him head over all things. And therefore, it wasn't any exaggeration in the least when the risen Lord Jesus Christ said to his apostles, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. I'll be with you to the end. Oh, what boldness and courage Christians should have with one saying, All authority is given to me. I am the head of the corner. Go. I'll be with you. He's right here in this room this morning. Nobody who knows Jesus Christ should ever be afraid of anything. And therefore, the Apostle Paul comes on to the Areopagus and he doesn't say... Well, my experience uh, religiously is that one can have great peace if he believes in Jesus. He says, he who made heaven and earth has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And he has given proof of that by raising him from the dead. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we come back to where we started to the Apostle Peter. What was his interpretation? There is no salvation in anyone else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Don't be like the builders this morning. Don't stumble over the stone this morning. Because the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And this is the Lord's doing. And my prayer is that it will be marvelous in your eyes. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, if there is anyone still struggling with the blindness of the builders, blow it away. Oh, God, work a miracle of quickening, enlightening, awakening in every heart that is blind this morning. And be pleased, oh, God, that we behold the man, son of God, son of man, rejected, risen for his glory. Amen.